The scripture today is Judges 13, 1 through 24. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord gave them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. There was a certain man of Zorah, of the tribe of the Danites, whose name was Manoah. And his wife was barren and had no children. And the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Behold, you are barren and have not born children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. Therefore, be careful and drink no wine or strong drink and eat nothing unclean. For behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. No razor shall come upon his head, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb, and he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. Then the woman came and told her husband, A man came to me, and his appearance was like the appearance of the angel of God. Very awesome. I did not ask him where he was from, and he did not tell me his name, but he said to me, Behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. So then drink no wine, nor strong drink, and eat nothing unclean. For the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb, and to the day of his death. Then Manoah prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, please let the man of God whom you sent come to us again, and teach us what we are to do with the child who will be born. And God listened to the voice of Manoah, and the angel of God came again to the woman as she sat in the field. But Manoah, her husband, was not with her. So the woman ran quickly and told her husband, Behold, the man who came to me the other day has appeared to me. And Manoah arose and went with his wife and came to the man and said to him, Are you the man who spoke to this woman? And he said, I am. And Manoah said, Now when your words come true, what is to be the child's manner of life? And what is his mission? And the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, of all that I have said to the woman, let her be careful. She may not eat of anything that comes from the vine, neither let her drink wine or strong drink or eat any unclean thing. All that I commanded her, let her observe. Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, please let us detain you and prepare a young goat for you. And the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, if you detain me, I will not eat your food. But if you prepare a burnt offering, then offer it to the Lord. For Manoah did not know that he was an angel of the Lord. And Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, What is your name? So that when your words come true, we may honor you. And the angel of the Lord said to him, Why do you ask my name, seeing it is wonderful? So Manoah took the young goat with the grain offering and offered it on the rock to the Lord, to the one who works wonders. And Manoah and his wife were watching. And when the flame went up toward heaven from the altar, the angel of the Lord went up in the flame of the altar. Now Manoah and his wife were watching, and they fell on their faces to the ground. The angel of the Lord appeared no more to Manoah and his wife, then Manoah knew that he was the angel of the Lord. And Manoah said to his wife, We shall surely die, 
for we have seen God. But his wife said to him, If the Lord had meant to kill us, he would not have accepted a burnt offering and a grain offering at our hands, or shown us all these things, or now announced to us such things as these. And the woman bore a son and called his name Samson. And the young man grew, and the Lord blessed him. Father God, appear to us through the power of your word this morning. Bless us and grow us just as you grew Samson in unique ways in order to follow your ways. Help us learn from your word and the lessons of your word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning we're at the final birth before... We get to the birth of Christ on Christmas Eve, and we are in one of my favorite books of all in the Bible, the book of Judges. It's a fun book. The book of Judges has this repeating pattern, this cycle. It's called the Judges cycle, usually. Blue skies are going to clear up. Everything's happy in Israel, and everybody's grand. This happens time and time again in Judges. And when things are going well in the world, who do we often forget about? God. I don't need God when things are going well. I'm already, you know, I'm, I'm on my own streak of luck here. And so what would happen is, after a period of times of, of things going well, people would decide, as the people did here, to start living based on their own feelings, their own thoughts, their own wisdom, not by God's wisdom, God's word, God's directions. And so there would be this period of times where then things get awful. And when things get awful, what do people like to do? We've heard a lot of it in 2020. They start complaining. God, please stop this. This is awful. I can't endure this anymore and this is what was happening for a period of 40 years that's how long the exodus was a period of complaint where the philistines of all people the philistines who david will eventually contend with they're in power they're in control so what god does in judges is he rises up this judge-like figure this kingly figure they give redemption to the people there's this period of happiness and 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 you know health, wealth, and prosperity, and then what happens again? People start to forget about God again. Cycle repeats. It's the judge's cycle. Honestly, it's really a cycle that's repeated by us Christians as well. Rinse and repeat, rinse and repeat over and over again. When things go well, we often forget about God. That's really a summary of the entire book of Judges. And it's really a summary of the cycle maybe of the Christian life, especially the American Christian life. When things are going really well, we tend to ignore God. When we're ignoring God, we live in foolish ways, guided by our feelings, our wants, our directions, our desires, rather than God's, and we begin to make bad decisions. And when things go bad for us, we wallow and lament. And yet, if he 
if we are his, he ultimately bails us out of these situations because he restores us. He loves us. In one sense, Judges also testifies of God's just incredible, enduring love for us. He just time and time again, because we, we get tempted to believe in the Santa Claus God, where you've messed up, you get coal in your stocking now, but Judges says, no, 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 no. I will rescue again, you again my child, again and again and again and again. And so this passage begins by telling us that the people of Israel, while they had given themselves over to evil, um, God basically in response allows the Philistines to rule over them for 40 years. Actually, the Hebrew word translated here is, is that everyone was basically living in a way as they saw fit in their own mind, in their own ways. It's not that the people boldly declared, hey, you know what I want to do this morning? I want to make God angry. They just started living by their feelings and their thoughts and their commands rather than God. And what did that not leave room for? It did not leave room for God and his word and his commands. And so things had gotten bad. And while I'm not a fan of outright personally declaring things in our own day as a direct judgment of God. So for instance, um, in the year of our Lord 2020 in the United States, as we continue to flounder as a nation, and to directly say, yes, this is a judgment of God, can we all at least admit the following right here at the beginning of Judges? God does allow hardship to befall nations when they aren't faithful to him. That's a biblical truth. What you want to do with it in our current society, in our current world, have at it. But a biblical truth is God does allow hardship to befall societies who stray from his truth. We know this because of Judges 13.1, but if we're being honest, we already know this as a, at a personal level. When we struggle with sins like lust, greed, anger, envy... Um, adultery or what have you, these kinds of sin, pride, when we struggle with these things, God is actually being generous with us when these things don't work out well. It's actually a kind of a correcting mechanism to our life. You know, if you came up to me and said, hey, Kevin, what are you going to do for the holidays? And I said, oh, I got a great plan. I am going to ignore all my work responsibilities I'm going to yell at my children like I've never yelled at them before. Oh, it's going to be great. You know, I am going to just sit around all day, veg out, eat bonbons. And you know what? I'm really getting jealous of some of my neighbors and some of the stuff they have. So I'm, I'm even debating robbing a bank or at least, you know, a, a corner store or something. Get some money on my hands. That's what I'm going to do for my holiday season. And what are you thinking? You're thinking, well, well, first off, we need to do another pastoral search. But, but also, also you're thinking, okay, you're going to be a great candidate for the Jerry Springer show or a prison cell. Because God doesn't bless that kind of thing. And he's loving in his correction of us when we walk an errant path, whether it's at a national level or a personal level. God isn't supposed to bless such a lifestyle. 
So let us not think this is any different at a national level. As we continue to kind of strip things that have been in our nation that are good things, that are kind of based on the wisdom of God, it shouldn't surprise us if seasons of judgment are found. Because beginning of Judges 13, God's Word makes clear God is more than willing in situations as people keep walking further and further away from Him to judge it. Sometimes harshly. That's really what the book of Judges is about. That's really what the Christian life is all about. And from this bleak nation, we bump into this husband and wife. They're in a bleak national setting, and they also have a double whammy. They do not have a child. And so they're living in a terrible moment historically, and cap it off, they uh, don't have children. This week, I, I read more on the ancient practice of fertility treatments than I ever have before. I know that's a fascinating topic to you all. But actually, it was kind of interesting. I didn't really know it to the extent that I, uh, I know it now. When archaeologists dig up, especially in the Middle Eastern world, they find one thing over and over again. And it's sort of like our infomercials. You know, we have those infomercials about the diet pills, about the male pattern baldness, you know, and other little things like just take this little sugar pill, the sugar cube, and it's the fountain of life type of thing. Um, And you can be a huckster and make a lot of money out of this. Well, the one thing they find is the fact that there's all these fertility treatments. They're kind of odd. They're like carved out little uh, gods usually, or there's like these recipes that they mix together. But they find this over throughout this region especially, over and over again, in houses and homes and public squares, because at that time, not having a child was the worst thing ever. And so what happens next in this story is just pure grace. Manoah and his wife are not calling out to God to give him a child. They're not asking God to do anything remarkable for them at this moment. Samuel, as he writes this down, he doesn't say they've, they've been really even necessarily praying for it. I'm not saying they didn't, but the biblical writer doesn't make that a condition. And they certainly haven't been, done anything to earn the right of such a special gift, to be, receive such a great gift, such a child. But because of who our God is, God just comes to barren people and he loves to give fruit to them. And for this woman, that would have been like winning the lottery. It would have seemed like a salvation of sorts. Not only would she get to have a son, a barren woman in a barren land, but the son would help fight back Israel's greatest military threat of the time, the Philistines. Kind of made me think of the the Rees yesterday where uh, throughout this burial ground, not a cemetery, which I learned yesterday, the, from the Revolutionary War to modern conflicts, we have had we have people that hallow these grounds, and they had faced down existential threat after existential threat, 
of men and women who have answered the call. And this mother here in Samson in this moment understands her son is going to become a hero for the people. A unique kind of war hero, a unique kind of judge who's going to deliver them from the Philistines. No conditions are placed upon it. But then with, after the gift is received, there are several no's of this passage. The heavenly visitor requests things like the mother is not to drink some wine or some strong drink or eat anything unclean or touch anything unclean uh, like a dead body. Now to be clear, remember, the angel of the Lord isn't saying if you don't do this, I won't give you the baby. No, God doesn't work that way. God's not like Santa Claus. Santa Claus says if you don't live up to my standard, I'll give you coal in your stocking. But our Lord says, hey, I know you so well that while I know you deserve coal, I'm going to bless you anyways because I don't like seeing you without a future hope. There is a way to manipulate people to do things out of fear because no one wants coal in their stocking. But God calls us to love and to a love that's in response to his greater outpouring of love for us. Our God says, because of what I've done for you and what I'm going to do for you, will you now begin to allow yourself to be changed by me? Will you allow yourself to be changed by me because of my grace? And if you get that idea, that's a powerful thing. That will change the rest of your life and how you live. God has blessed you, so go out in the world living differently. Not how the world expects you to live, driven by their preferences and thoughts, which just lead to doom, but by God's ways. So Manoah's wife finds out she will have a child. She's going to live a Nazarite kind of life, and he will help save Israel from the hand of their greatest enemy. By the way, there's a couple pla- only a couple places in the Bible that talk about the Nazarite vow. So I'm going to take the opportunity to do a little aside about the Nazarite vow. Nazarite vow comes to us from Numbers chapter 6. It was this special kind of holiness vow that you could take. And if you were under the Nazarite vow, it was a little bit like being spiritual special forces. So, for instance, um, I grew up in San Diego. And I was, my dad was a captain in the Navy. And, of course, being a captain in the Navy, he hung around people in circles in the military. And so, you know, I would bump into other people in the military. Well, sometimes in the Navy, I would bump into an individual who had a beard and who had long hair. But they would say, I'm in, actively in the Navy. What were they a part of? The Navy SEALs. There's a Navy SEAL base in Coronado. Actually, this is an aside, but my prom date, his dad was a captain in the Navy SEALs. He told me to have her home by midnight. She was home at 11. He, he shook my hand in a way that like almost broke the bones, like, don't try me. She was... She was yelling at me. I really got her home about 11.30. She was, she was yelling, you could keep me out later. No, no, I'm not doing that. Your dad's a Navy SEAL. 
That's a little bit like the Nazareth, Nazarite vow. They're the special forces. They cannot drink. They can't have anything grape-related. They can't have grape juice uh, or anything like that. They can't eat grapes. They can't touch dead things, dead people. They can touch dead animals. That's a common misunderstanding of Samson. It's dead individuals. They can't be around that sort of thing. And there's three people in Scripture who've taken, who are said to have been under the Nazarite vow during their entire life. One we covered last week, Samuel. This week, Samson. Anyone know the last one? Long-haired person under the Nazarite vow. Who? Yes, it's John the Baptist. If you were thinking about the person behind me, Jesus didn't have long hair. He definitely wasn't under the Nazarite vow. Sorry, I'm not saying you can't appreciate the artwork, but Jesus did not have long hair. He wasn't allowed to grow his hair out. He was not under the Nazarite vow. We know he wasn't under the Nazarite vow because Jesus, and you can find this in Luke's Gospel, chapter 7, he drank alcohol, he drank wine. You can also find in chapter 7, he had no problem touching a grave. And in chapter 8 as well, he touches a dead girl. If he was under the Nazarite vow, he broke his vows. He was never under the Nazarite vow in his ministry. So, not saying, you know, take down all the artwork of old gosh and I'll have a new stained glass guy put short hair. But just to realize when you get to heaven, he's going to have short hair. Um, <laughs> However... Jesus did follow the, follow the fullness of the law. So there was a period of time I do believe Jesus took the Nazarite vow. And when was it? It was on the last night of his life. During the Last Supper, the last 24 hours. Some remark that it sounds like Jesus actually takes the vow. And we can see this, for instance, in Luke's version of the Last Supper. When the hour had come, Jesus reclined at the table with his apostles, and he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before my suffering. For I tell you that I will not eat it again, eat again, until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it amongst yourselves, for I tell you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now on until the kingdom of God comes. Jesus promises not to drink wine until the kingdom of God has come upon the world in the culmination of his ultimate victory. And when does that vow expire? Right before Jesus says his last words on the cross, which is, it is finished. If you remember this, there's this weird moment where Jesus keeps getting offered hyssop during the Passion, and he turns it down. But he actually takes it right before his last words. He takes a sip from the fruit of the vine. And then he says it is finished and breathes out his last because at that moment, the kingdom has now come. He has accomplished it through his death. And so I know that was an aside, but again, you don't get many times to talk about the Nazarite vow and to correct the fact that when you go to heaven, Jesus is going to have short hair. But I do that now. And so let's return to the story. We have this great scene where 
the wife is about to tell the husband what happened to her and basically, hey, honey, guess what happened to me while you were golf doing your thing? Uh, A man stopped by, God stopped by, well, an angel stopped by and told me I'm going to be pregnant. And in verse 6 and 7 there, she actually adds something that the angel did not say. But we're not going to cover it yet. We're going to return to that later. Just make a mental note. We're going to return to 6 and 7 later. So Manoah, after hearing what his, exci- his wife experienced, prays to God and basically says, I want to have happen what, what she had happen. And God ends up coming to his wife again. And she calls out to her husband. And Manoah gets his, she come, calls out to her husband when God, God comes again. And Manoah gets his audience. And he has two questions. First, he asks, Hey, are you the guy? Are you the guy spending time with my wife the other day? I notice he doesn't say angel. He says man. This heavenly host appears to be a man-like appearance. And we also know Manoah is a real charmer in this moment towards his wife because he refers to his wife as woman. If you don't know why... That's a problem. Your husbands, you could try to do that for a couple of days and see how your wife responds. Hey, woman. <laughs> I don't need to go into that. And the visitor answers, I am. Which every good Jewish reader all of a sudden gets their like spidey sense. There's a little bit of, wait, wait, wait. Wait, wait, how did he answer that question? Because they know their Old Testament and they know the fact that when a heavenly pers- body comes to the earth and says, I am, that kind of reminds me of Moses. So maybe this is God. But, Moses, uh, but Manoah, he misses the subtle hint. He's still in fact-finding mode. You know, what does this man have to do with his woman? This man's got some explaining to do. And so Manoah bulldozers over this hint. And then Manoah asks the visitor, hey, how is my child supposed to live again? But the divine messenger, he's already given the answer to the wife on the previous visit. He doesn't repeat it all for Manoah. He doesn't actually answer Manoah's question. And there's a teaching element here. You know, one of the reasons to be knowledgeable about Scripture is because God has come to people in the past and we can learn from it. God has already talked to us through others. He's already communicated His truth through other people. And I'll often hear people say, oh, I wish God would come to me and talk to me. Read your Bible out loud. For us as Christians, we have been told that all Scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness, so that the servant of God can be equipped for every good work. So God has told others what he needs to tell us as well in Scripture. And so that's why we want to live by the words of Scripture. That's why this book is called, in one sense, our daily bread. It can be our daily bread, which provides us sustenance, because we can be satisfied by it. And then after Manoah gets his questions out, finally, and only then, does he consider being hospitable. If you compare that to two weeks ago when we were looking at Isaac's announcement, 
with Abraham. Remember, Abraham had already made 60 loaves of bread, killed his greatest calf, started grilling steaks, gave his guests a cool place to sit down and to relax in before he started asking questions. Manoah, on the other other hand, has it flipped. He's asking questions, and then hospitality is towards the back end of it. Manoah is letting fear and doubts and anxiety get in the way of good fellowship with God. And the visitor, being aware of Manoah's blindness, when he's offered food by Manoah, says, I won't eat food with you. However, if you would offer the food like you would offer it to God, then I can partake. Which is hint number two. And at this point, Samuel, who writes this down, he's, he's so frustrated at Manoah's missing the point that he basically writes in as the narrator, and Manoah still can't figure out it's God in verse 16. And then for the third time, we have Manoah missing the point on who this is, and he says, what's your name? And of course, Jews still today have this policy. There's one name that you cannot say. It's a name that's too precious. It's the name of God. It's the only way, if you're just in the Old Testament, you can never say that name. And so the messenger says, you can't say my name. It's too precious for you. Hint number three. But Manoah still misses this idea. And so Manoah just begins to offer the goat. And the man-like appearance who was God who the Old Testament at times refers to these pre-incarnate appearances of God as theophanies or as the angel of God. Um, Once the offering is made, he goes up into the flame. The flame would have extended into the heavens and the meal is consumed. And Manoah, still not getting it at this point, screams, we're all going to die. We've seen God to his wife. Because he's, he's finally at least started to realize that he's seen God. But he's also thinking about Moses in the book of Exodus when Moses, for instance, was told he could not see God face to face and live. But Manoah's wife, she gently corrects him. Wives are important. Good wife and godly wife. Here, close your ears. Close your ears. A good and godly wife is... A true blessing when she can gently correct you when you've gone astray. She calms her husband, calms his fears, saying, Hey, if the Lord wanted to judge us, he wouldn't have revealed to us the marvelous things he did about who he was, about what he's going to do for us. That's, that doesn't seem like the God I just met. And this is another moment for personal application. I know some of you fear God, and I know sometimes I can even fall into that pattern, really, especially early in my Christian walk. Feared God a lot. Fear God even though He's done marvelous things for us. We fear God even though He's done, fulfilled remarkable, th- given us remarkable promises to place our trust in that will last forever, that will never end. And if you fear Him in this kind of unhealthy way, it robs you of a more intimate experience with Him. Where you come to God with doubts and you worry He's going to judge you rather than um, 
being blessed by the fact that God has come. I sorrow over Christians who just think that God wants them to be incredibly paranoid and fearful, that he's going to cast them in judgment in their entire life. God has revealed things about himself, about who he is to you, so that you live with him and abide with him without fear, without anxiety, but actually are transformed by his love. And so praise the good word from Manoah's wife who calms her spouse's fears with a reassuring word about the wondrous things God has promised. Let all those in relationships, whether marital ones or friendships or family relationships, offer encouraging words. Be that kind of individual. Because he's done things for us in order to give us joy. And then our last verse of the passage says, The woman gave birth to a boy and named him Samson, which in the Hebrew means little son. God gave her a little son. And that little son, he grew into a great and powerful judge. And God blessed him. From such a small child came such great strength. But I promised you I would return to verse 6 and 7. To what the mother of Samson added from the messenger when she talked to her husband the first time. I'm assuming most of you know the story of Samson well. He's sort of an incredible Hulk kind of figure in the Bible. He is very powerful, but he has a weak spot. He fall, he's looking for love in all the wrong places from time to time. He falls in love with the wrong kinds of women. Women do not share his faith or his love for God. And eventually this leads to the Philistines capturing Samson and putting him on display in chains in their temple. Yet did you notice the words Samson's mother prophetically added about her son? She said her son Samson would be uniquely consecrated and set apart from God to his dying day. She seems to understand that the very purpose of his life, this little son's life, at the beginning will culminate at the end in a unique moment at the hour of his death. God didn't originally say this to her, but even when God returns to Manoah and basically says, your wife has told you all that you need to know, it basically confirms that the wife, what the wife told Manoah was all true. So the Holy Spirit must have inspired her to add that fact. That when Samson died, somehow it would be unique. And unique it was for this little son. Because the son was handed over to his enemies. Betrayed with a kiss. From someone he loved. Put before the temple to be mocked and ridiculed. And blinded by sin. And yet God, at the greatest hour of torment and agony, blessed him with strength in that very hour, a supernatural strength beyond all imagination, in order that the Son with the outstretched arms might rip the temple down, which served the house of the enemy and had devolved into a house of sin. And the great enemy of God's people was crushed under the weight of it all. And those who received God's unmerited and unearned grace were liberated. But who am I talking about again? 
Who is this story all about? Was it Samson? Or was it Christ the Lord? I'm not sure. I'll let you decide who I was talking about at the very end. Let us pray. Father God, you gave us a son who, with outstretched arms, ripped down the temple. Ripped down our need to come to you and to be fearful of you. And to believe that the offering that makes us acceptable before your eyes is through our own strength. Let us behold your son, who was mighty indeed, who conquered through what seemed to be his defeat, who crushed the greatest enemy of all, sin itself, through the power of the cross. Help us to be changed by that, to live in a new way, to look different in this world because of what the little son has accomplished, who is not little at all, but most mighty indeed. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.